I'd go to meetings and I would watch these sophisticated people talking about finance and marketing and strategy. And I'd be going, but these people don't even get along. They don't even have honest conversations. They're not even courageous in how they confront one another and love one another. And I thought, this is the problem in business. We can rearrange the deck chairs around finance and technology and marketing and strategy all we want. But if human beings don't actually know how to work together, we're wasting their money. Welcome to The Ziggler Show, where we inspire your true performance. I'm your host, Kevin Miller. Today, we bring you an incredible message on being the preferred team player on your team. Patrick Lencioni is one of the most sought-after corporate speakers and influencers on the planet. He has 11 best-selling books, and his latest is just tremendous. It's titled The Ideal Team Player, How to Recognize and Cultivate the Three Essential Virtues. Now, folks, either we all want to hire the ideal team player or we want to know how to be the ideal, most desired team player. And this message speaks to both. I'll give it away here. The three essential virtues are humility, hunger, and smarts. But that doesn't truly give it away is you need to understand the specific dynamics of each of those that Patrick teaches us. He's just an authority on human dynamics, especially in the workplace. It was an incredible conversation as he has an amazing story that sets him up to be the innovator and authority he is in this space. You can connect with Patrick at tablegroup.com slash hub and find his new book, The Ideal Team Player, wherever you buy books. Friends, along with great show content, we seek out great sponsors with products and services we feel will serve you well, us too. To get the products and services that will help us all most, we want to know the most we can about you. Would you please go to podsurvey.com slash Ziggler, take a quick anonymous survey that will really help us to get to know your preferences. I'm as busy as you are and I don't do a lot of surveys. So to thank you with every submitted survey, you can enter to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Again, that's podsurvey.com slash Ziggler. Thanks so much for helping us out. Okay. Now folks, I bring you Patrick Lencioni. Well, Patrick, you could not be more heralded in the business world for your contributions. And I want to dig into this latest message, this latest book, The Ideal Team Player. But first, just for our own context, heck, for for my context, I'm curious, how did you get here? I'm guessing you didn't graduate out of high school as one of the most sought after business speakers in America. So where's the beginning of this start? Gosh, how far to go back. So I grew up in a family that didn't go to college. My parents didn't. And a big Irish-Italian family, lots of uncles and aunts and cousins. So I went away to college not knowing what I was going to do and, um, and didn't have any clue. But I did well enough in school that a management consulting firm hired me, a company called Bain & Company. And I thought how cool that would be. Management sounded interesting to me and consulting, except Bain didn't do either of those things. It was number crunching and analysis. And it was ah. not for me. But while I was there, I caught the bug for for the human dynamics that went on in business. And it made me remember my dad when I was a kid, he would come home from work and complain about management at his company. And I was and I it bummed me out. I was like eight or nine years old and I was like, why is my dad frustrated by the people that are supposed to be helping him do a good job? Because my dad was good at what he did. And so it, I said to myself, I think that's what I'm supposed to do is help people be more effective in their human dynamics at work. I didn't know what that meant because I didn't go to graduate school or anything. So I just got a job at uh, some technology companies and started teaching myself or God was revealing things to me about human beings and how they work together. And then I said, this is what I want to do in my life. And uh, and seven years later, I started my own firm. We had no idea that I would ever be an author or a speaker. We just were going to go out and help companies become healthier and more effective. And, um, Somebody encouraged me to write a book about one of my theories. I decided to write a fable. Somebody actually published it. We thought that was great. They, they print a couple hundred of them and we could hand them out to our clients. People started reading them. They had me write a few more and it, it was really accidental. I've been very blessed, but I did not have any idea that this field existed or that this kind of job existed. So I would say I was a pretty accidental um, author and consultant and speaker and uh, I never went back to grad school, so it's all been learning on the job. Yeah. 
And um, so that's my story. A kid from Bakersfield, California, which is a little slice of Oklahoma Uh in the middle of California. So this really started young, not something you ever intended. So going through college and whatnot, this was not a focus. What what was your focus college-wise? Well, it's, it's very interesting. So I, I, I left high school. My, again, my parents didn't go to college, and they scraped to send us to college. God bless them. It was, I got more than I deserved, as I say. And, and my dad said, God rest his soul, you should study accounting and computers because those are, that's how you get a good job. He knew that. And both of those things were misery to me. And so, but I did study economics to honor him and to be practical and, but I took journalism and psychology and screenwriting and, and other subjects, and I minored in Spanish. And when I got out of college, I continued to write for fun. And so when this whole concept came about and somebody said, you should write a book about this new theory you have on leadership, I said, you know, I'm going to write uh, a, a fiction story, a fable, but I'm going to write it like a screenplay. My books are very big on dialogue and character development and plot. And so my passion for writing and psychology got combined with the, uh, the business and economics that I studied, economics. And so that's how it came together. But it all started when I was a kid and thinking my dad should like his job because he worked really hard and I didn't want him to be unhappy. So, so it all kind of came together. Yeah. So writing and psychology. Okay. So that's where you're, and was that, a, was that an authentic interest at that point in college? I mean, that really was what piqued your interest at that point? Yeah. I mean, and, but again, I had no idea that that could play out in the real world. It wasn't until I actually went to this company in San Francisco and it was a management consulting and going to these big companies. I'd never experienced them as a kid. You know, there was no big companies to work at at Bakersfield. And so I started, I'd go to meetings and I would watch these sophisticated people talking about finance and marketing and strategy. And I'd be going, but these people don't even get along. They don't even have honest conversations. They're not even courageous in how they confront one another and love one another. And I thought, this is the problem in business. We can rearrange the deck chairs around finance and technology and marketing and strategy all we want. But if human beings don't actually know how to work together, we're wasting their money. And I actually went to a client where I presented all this analysis I did. And I was working for some people, one of whom is kind of a famous CEO now. Her name's Meg Whitman. She's at, at HP. And she was the partner. And I was like, I said to the people in my case, I said, we should help them with their human dynamics. And they said, that's not what they pay us to do. And that was the day I said, well, that's what I want to do. So I left there and I started learning about Myers-Briggs and organizational mm-hmm. dynamics and human behavior. And, um, and then that's how this came about. But I had no idea. One last thing that's interesting, when I was at Claremont McKenna, where I went to school, this little liberal arts college in Los Angeles, there was a professor there named Peter Drucker. Uh-huh. I had no idea who he was and never uh-huh. took a class from him because I didn't even know this existed. Yeah. So I looked back later and I said, well, maybe if I'd have understood this world, I might have actually pursued it earlier in my career. But God has a way of bringing us to where he wants us on his time. So. Yes, he does. So I'm curious about your decision to write it as a fable. And you actually said the word a second ago as a screenplay. Did you choose that as a medium because it seemed unique and intriguing? Or did you choose it because you actually as you saw these human dynamics go on, it's, it's, it is somewhat of a screenplay going on. You know, to be fair, there's a little bit of that, but the most important thing that I can remember, if I recall this correctly, is that when they told me to write a book, I thought about all the business books I'd, I'd ever read and I didn't finish any of them. Huh. And I remember I'd read the first few uh, chapters and I would say, okay, I think I got it. And I'd skim through the rest and go, yeah, I think they're kind of repeating themselves. And I thought it really bummed me out, Kevin, to think that I might write a book that people wouldn't read most of what I wrote. So I said, why don't I re- write a book that they'll actually want to keep reading? In other words, that they'll, they'll find entertaining while they're learning. And so I did that, but I didn't know that it would be successful. I did it because I thought it would be more interesting mm. and it would be fun for me to write. And we had no idea that that would actually become one of the things I do and that people would say. And I wrote one book that was not fiction called The Advantage. And people like that. But a lot of people said, oh, we love the fiction. So keep writing that. A lot of people who don't really read a lot of business books will read mine because they, they want to get caught in the story and learn something without realizing they're learning. So I think a big part of it was I just wanted people to read the whole thing. And I wanted them to, to be compelled or feel entertained. Well, so this aspect of you, you working within teams so much, and specifically in the corporate world, is that something that was 
natural for you. So when you look back at, at your, your, your childhood and youth and young adulthood and look at school, did you, were you involved in team efforts there, whether it was sports or extracurricular things, did you gravitate towards that? Or was it just by proxy of the corporate world is made up of teams. You can't get away from it. Uh, natural or again, just, uh, inserted into it. I think natural in the sense that I played a lot of sports as a kid and I was involved in lots of organizations. And I guess I was, I was a leader. And so that was interesting to me. And I was the head resident assistant at my college and everybody lived on campus. I liked meetings and I loved all that stuff. And so I, I had an a, a inclination toward that, but I didn't understand it from a theoretical or even a business experience standpoint until I entered the workforce. And then I was like, wow, I love this. I remember I did the Myers-Briggs and I, I found out I was an ENFP, which is the farthest thing from a data jockey. Mm-hmm. I really trusted intuition and human understanding. And then I did that book called What Color Is My Parachute from, uh-huh. from um, uh, Richard Bowles. Uh-huh. And, and I went through my life and I realized that's what I was meant to do. And I got the chance to meet him later in life. God rest his soul too. And so I, uh, I think it was natural. And then I learned later that I had an aptitude for it. Okay. And so that's kind of how it came about. I, and I love my work. I, I get to, like you do, I, I wake up every day and, and love what I do. I, it doesn't feel like a job. Well, so I, I'm with that, you finding that human dynamics as an interest, obviously you could have gone after whatever type of business and just used that understanding to create a great team, create a great product or service, uh, and go forward. What was the, when did it happen that you thought, I want to take this to the world, to the, to all these teams, to all these corporations and help them apply it to their various products, services, messages, ideas? You know, that's a great question. And it's when I, I, I don't want people to think I was always intentional. Um, I, but there was some intentionality and most of it was like things just happened. So, so I, I, I was working at a company called Sybase, which, which was a, a technology company. And I was in charge of organizational development and communication, but it was a technology company, but I was on the human side of things. And, and I, it came time to leave. You could tell things were changed, leadership changed. And I thought I need to go. And I got job offers from Steve Jobs at Pixar Oh, wow. And a guy named Eric Schmidt at Novell, who's he, Eric Schmidt's now at Google, and, and of course, people know Steve Jobs. And I was thinking about taking a job with them, and I realized I really wanted to have my own firm. But I thought that firm would just be working with clients here locally to help them do this. And then we started this company, and it was just five of us working out of a single loft space. And my dad, of course, said, you know, don't go, go work for those other companies. You'll have benefits there. And, you know, mm-hmm. you're a vice president. And I was like, oh, but dad, I really want to do my own thing. But we never thought it would change the world. We said, wouldn't that be great if we could, we could have an impact on the world? But I had not written a book or given a speech. We thought we were just going to work with a few companies here in the Bay Area. And then by the grace of God, people started reading it. And a couple of people asked me to speak. And the demand for that grew. And before we knew what was happening, it was spreading far beyond anything we could have imagined or supported. And so we decided we had to take that responsibility seriously and start publishing some things and putting things out there so other people could use them. And today there's so many consultants using our material and, and we don't know most of them, and, but we're grateful for them. And we try to give our, our stuff away and make it available to everyone. So it wasn't intentional. Yeah but we try to cooperate with opportunity and be a good stewards of the resources that we have. Well, on that aspect of not being intentional, what is, as you look at your business today, what is a, a fruition that is most, you wouldn't have guessed it. One of the more surprising things that I never would have thought that we would be providing X, you know, you, you intended to do this, but is there anything that you guys are, are fulfilling a fruition that it's not something that you would have guessed would happen? Yeah. I think the, the hardest part about answering that question is that there's so many, huh. but I, I, I think one, one thing that's come up recently in the last couple of talks I've given to companies is that we had no idea that these principles we came up with would, would translate beyond, beyond companies and beyond small companies and beyond the United States. I honestly thought I was writing it for small companies in the Bay Area that were in technology that were trying to grow. And then big companies started to say, hey, this applies to us too. And then foreign companies and, and overseas were like, hey, this applies in India and applies in Europe and applies in Africa too. And that it applies in churches. And we remember like when 
the people in the military in Afghanistan, they were buying boxes of it to bring into the barracks to, to share with their soldiers before they went out on missions around teamwork. And we were like, oh my Lord, people are using this in ways that we never thought would be used. And that we had tapped into some very simple universal truths that we thought would be applied more specifically in a more narrow fashion. So I guess the biggest one is that we didn't know that churches, schools, nonprofits, military, sports organizations, there's coaches in the NBA and the NFL that were using it. And they were learning from a book. And the first book I'm talking about that really blew up was The Five Dysfunctions of a Team, which was written by a, about a female executive who runs a company in the Bay Area. And that a guy running a football team or a squadron in Iraq or Afghanistan was learning from her and from this team about how they could do better in what they did. So that was beyond, I mean, and that's how you know it's that God gives you gifts because that didn't, I don't know where that came from. I didn't see how that would apply. And I don't say that in some, I really believe that, you know, we're vessels and stewards and he, he lets us, he lets us cooperate with him, but I don't, it, it wasn't from me. There was no reason why I should have known things that would apply to those people. Okay, so I want to ask then about that. You know, this 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 message translating beyond and applying different places. When was there a point? I'm just curious personally with you. Is there, was there a point where you're looking at this and you're doing it in work, and you turned around and said, "Oh my gosh, this this relates to my." family as a husband i know your dad to four boys was there a point there or was it just kind of an organic of course it applied there or was there a point again yeah we're saying i I need to take this stuff this needs to apply to my 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 relationship as a spouse and to my parenting with these guys well yes i mean i i can't remember exactly the moment but i do remember a moment or, or the, the vestiges of a moment when I went home and I said to my wife one day, cause I'm here, I'm working with my clients to help them be planful and intentional and, and healthy and all this. Of course, what do we do at home? We um, we're reactive and we wake up every day and go, Oh my gosh, it's chaotic. And I remember I went home to my wife one day and I probably said in a not very uh, charitable way, um, but also not in a terribly mean way, but nonetheless, it probably got interpreted that way. Yeah. I said, you know, if my clients ran their, companies the way we run our family they'd go out of business Uh, but it was really an indictment of myself too it was like why do i do off-site meetings and have plans and clarify my values and and analyze decisions within a context and then at home we wing it yeah and i thought if my family is more important than my company and it certainly was and is then why am i so unintentional about the way i live my life at home and i realized that it was what i call the curse of of, of, um, unconditional love. In other words, my wife isn't going to fire me, Right. Wow. but I could lose my job and my clients, they could fire me, but at home we go, well, this is going to continue. So I can just wing this. And I thought, what a terrible way to live at home. So that's when I wrote a book called the, um, three big questions for a frantic family, which my agent, he was probably right, said, you should call it the cure for the frantic family, but I didn't want to overstate it. But what it really was, was, why don't I apply some of the principles I use at work in a way that would work for my wife and I and our children? In other words, why don't we sit down and clarify what our values are? Yeah. What makes us different than the people next door or in the, in the pew next to us at church or my brother and my sister? Why don't I think about what our intentional strategy for running our family is? Why don't we have meetings and offsites? And of course, it's never going to be as formal, but that's the day I realized we needed to be more intentional at home. Wow, and um, and that book has has sold less than any of my others because people don't buy family books the way they buy other self help books. But the people who have bought it and found it use it in a way that none of my clients do. They call it say it's changed the way we live at home. And so that book, the the three big questions for a frantic family, is probably the most important book I've I've written, and one that maybe are are changing people in more profound ways. It just there's no space for it at on the bookshelf and people don't go to Amazon looking for those things, probably because it's kind of painful to realize that we're, that we're not doing our best at home. So anyway, that's a long yeah, answer. To no, that's a, that's a great answer. And I, we have learned that as well. When you put uh, family, parenting, marriage, the downloads go down. Uh, 
Isn't it amazing? It's amazing. It's, it's tragic, though I can also point the finger back at myself and say, where did you spend your money, Kevin? What seminars did you go to? What books did you buy? And I can find generally more that have to do with business than uh, the other. I'm at least aware of that and trying to, uh, to hit that. That's a, that's a big deal. So in the same sense, you mentioned earlier the church as well. So again, when you're looking at your, your work and the message you're putting out into the corporate world here, you talk about your family Now you've also, well, let's just talk about church. Uh, we, we have a, yeah. a lot of people in this audience who are at church as well. And I know you're heavily involved, uh, in that aspect of your life as well. Where do you see the need and how have you applied this in that capacity? And thanks to these sponsors for bringing us today's show. And folks who are listening, I'll, I'll jump the gun here and say the three, uh, the three things are humility, hunger, and smart, which I did just hear uh, that from your buddy, Dave Ramsey. You guys, I know, run together a lot. He talked about, he said, that's what we want in employees is humility, hunger, and, and smarts. Uh, so humility, uh, let's look at that. And, and I'm, I'm going to take a clip out uh, from the book, or it might've been from your website, uh, that humility is the most important virtue of the three great team players don't have big egos or concerns about status. They are quick to point out the contributions of others and generally don't seek attention for, uh, for themselves. They define success collectively and not individually. Okay. So I'm reading that and I'm thinking, okay, so we on the receiving end of that, myself included here, as we think about ourselves and wonder, Hmm, Am I humble? Am I living from humility? Will you help discern this by stating people who are not humble are, number one, unable to be vulnerable, number two, unable to build trust, and number three, are incapable of engaging in honest conflict. Uh, so I'm looking at that and again, I'll, I'll use myself as a guinea pig here that, uh, now, which is what I do here on the show. Cause I get to get free counsel. It's one of my primary <laughs> motivations. And, and, uh, so that number one, unable to be vulnerable. Now I would say I'm not private. And I think my staff and my partners would all say that now, nah, you know, I'm pretty, I'm pretty wide open, except I've come to in recent years through some counseling to realize I don't share my feelings. I don't share my true feelings. I don't share what I'm really thinking. That's not an area I'm vulnerable in. So I'm thinking I just, from your standpoint, I just took a chink against in my humility meter, if, if you will. So talk to us about that aspect of humility, vulnerability. What is that? How do we, how can we look at ourselves through that lens better? Yeah. You know, I mean, the thing about humility is we have to really understand what it is and, and, and that it's the principal virtue, right? I mean, if, if, if pride is the root of all sin, then humility is the antidote. And, and, mm. you know, it, if we can't go there, I mean, that, that's what Jesus was. And I remember somebody once said to me, he was the most attractive human being ever to, I mean, he was God made man, but, and they said, he, people are attracted to humility and, 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 so I'm, I'm thinking of all the different ways I can, I could say this. C.S. Lewis had a great definition of humility. He said, humility is not thinking less of yourself, but it's thinking about yourself less. And when we don't think that we're better than others, but we recognize who we are, then we can be vulnerable because it's like, what are we afraid of? And, and people that are not comfortable revealing themselves and being vulnerable it's usually because they're protecting themselves from something. Now, now people will say, well, vulnerability, what does that mean? That doesn't mean you walk up to a person on the street and you say, hey, let me tell you all my darkest secrets. It doesn't mean you're, you're – it requires a level of judgment and maturity. But what it means is you are not afraid to be hurt. Hmm. You, are, you are open. And, and um, so I'm not being very articulate here, but a humble person is somebody who has nothing to hide. And in the context of a team, they will be the first one to say, I'm sorry, or I made a mistake, or I'm not very good at this, or I need your help. And, and that is one of the most powerful things a person can do, but it has to be genuine. Okay. So then step one, and, you know, as I look through these, you're calling us, we've got to come to this from a place of personal health self-confidence to be able to do that well. So do we need to back up yes. there first? Yeah, because some people will say that guy's really humble. He never brags. 
which is a good thing. And he doesn't really think he's right. And he, he never puts his ideas out there very strongly. And they, we often misinterpret humility as a lack of self-confidence. And a humble person can be confident that they have skills and they can put their ideas out there. They just don't think it makes them important. So that's the difficulty of humility is we, it's, we have to know that we have gifts and talents and we can be confident in those, but we just can't think it makes us better than others. And we can't be arrogant about that. So it's, it's a little bit of a two edged sword here. And, um, and it's, it's what makes it difficult. Now, when you talked about the not showing your feelings, mm-hmm. well, I know plenty of people that look very humble, but there's a point at which we have to put our feelings out there because when we do that, it makes, it's a risk. And if you're humble, you're okay with that risk because if somebody takes advantage of you because of your genuine feelings, you're okay with that. So if we look at this humility and if we, if I take kind of this as a breakdown, if that's fair of, of being vulnerable, uh, number two is building trust. And three was being capable of engaging in honest conflict where do you see, let's go to the workplace. Where do you see us weakest as a culture? Where do we fall? Where do we fail in those three most? Well, there's an interesting thing that I'm dealing with a lot right now. I'm seeing it. It's that I think we have a problem in society and it gets to pride and which is the, the violation of humility. And that's, we don't engage in conflict. Now, a lot of people will say, what does conflict have to do with humility? Well, think about it this way. If, you, if you're working on a team, we are in a church, churches are the worst at this, or a nice business, or a business that has Christian undertones to it, or, or, or background, people will often not engage in conflict. And they'll do so, and they'll say, because I don't want to be mean. Mm-hmm. But we're talking about, like, how should we spend our scarce resources, and what should we do to help people in our, in our business? And if you passionately feel a certain way, and you disagree with somebody, you owe it to them to passionately disagree. And to say it to their face in a loving but, but uncomfortable way. And so what does pride have to do with that? Our pride says, if I step over the line or I offend them, I will have to ask their forgiveness. And I don't think I'm forgivable or I don't want to ask their forgiveness. So that would be a blow to my pride. So I see people in churches all the time, and it drives me crazy that won't argue about the right music for for the mass or the services or about the right way to do outreach. And they'll sit in there, nod their heads and smile at one another, and then they'll do something they know that doesn't work, and they think they've done something good because they've avoided an uncomfortable moment. What they've really done is guaranteed mediocrity or something less than, than excellence, and they did it to protect themselves from discomfort. And the truth of the matter is all of us need to go to one another and say, you know, I hope you understand that when I was arguing with you, I did it for the good of our mission. And if I overstep my bounds, I I beg your forgiveness. I love you and I'm imperfect. That's what a humble person does. And I've seen too many companies, too many churches, too many organizations, even too many families choose niceness over kindness and love. And I think in our society today, we think that we are supposed to affirm people in everything. And that's actually a form of cruelty because we are leaving them to do things that will hurt them later. But at least we can say it wasn't our fault. Wow. Does that make sense, Kevin? It does. And you just stepped on some of my toes. I don't know if I should share which. That is a hard hard one. I'm a people pleaser. And choosing, choosing niceness over kindness and love is... Oh, that's, that's convicting. And you know, when you say you're a people pleaser, cause I am too, I'm, I'm an ENFP, as I like to say that the, the, the uh, technical term for me is I'm a wuss. <laughs> and so when I don't hold someone accountable, when, when I don't do iron sharpening iron, as yeah. St. Paul says, when I say I'm a people pleaser, really what I am is a me pleaser. Cause I want them to like me and approve oh. of me. Wow. And, and I realize that with my children, if I love my children, then I will hold them accountable even if they temporarily dislike me for mm-hmm. it. And if I love the people that I work with, then I will hold them accountable even if they're temporarily disappointed in me because I know in the end it will serve them. And Jesus didn't tell everyone what they wanted to hear. If they were fragile, he told them in a way that they could hear. If they were arrogant, he told them in a way they needed to hear. But he didn't do it to stay in their good graces. And in fact, we know what happened to him. And we have to love someone enough to sacrifice our temporary reputation or well-being for their good. That is humility. 
Wow. And, yeah. and, and that's hard, but, but it's liberating. Yeah. I think you just, I think you just laid out a marriage course as well in that, oh. uh, in that piece right there. Sometimes I, ha- if I purify my intentions, I have to say something to my wife. If she says, does this dress make me look fat? Okay. If we're walking out the door, there's a reason not to say something. Uh-huh. But if she says, do you think that, you know, am I treating the kids well? And I feel like it's not good for her. I have to love her enough to let her be mad at me in that moment for telling mm-hmm. her the truth mm-hmm. and keep loving her through that so that later she can say, thank you for telling me the truth. If I only do it when it's, when she thanks me for it and rewards me for it, I'm not being a good husband. That is one of the more convicting uh, definitions of humility I've heard, Patrick, in all, in all truth. Uh, I will listen to that. Gosh, yeah, for, I, I need to listen to that with my wife. What you just laid out there was, uh, was beautiful. And it's a, again, I'm being candid and authentic here too. That is, that is a hard place for me, being a people pleaser, oh. it, but me, me being a me pleaser. Yeah, I want to be liked. Absolutely. Um, now, oh. it's easy to go the other direction and go, I am such a wonderful person that I'll tell anyone what's wrong with them at any moment because I'm being virtuous. And that's not virtuous because then it becomes pleasing myself. Okay. So, so it's that balance between really purifying your intentions. Am I saying this to them for their benefit or am I saying it because I want to get it off my chest and feel relieved that I told them the truth? Yeah. And it's, a, it's not a fine line, but it's in a very important line. Yeah, it sounds like a whole book right there, though. Kind of like you're back to your family book. I think if you titled one about humility, I don't know who would buy it because who wants to go there? So thank you for <laughs> exactly. wrapping it up in the brilliant book that you that you did. <laughs> well, man, I want to hit number two here on this is hunger. And again, a, a piece that I read about that section, uh, hungry people are always looking for more, more to do, more to learn, more responsibility. They rarely have to be pushed to work harder because they're self-motivated and diligent. They're always always thinking about the next step, the next opportunity, people who lack the virtue of hunger won't achieve results. Okay. So we hear that. I mean, we're talking to tens of thousands of people right now or who will listen to it on a podcast. They're a more aspiring crowd. Otherwise they'd be listening to, you know, some kind of entertainment. Uh, they're here, they're aspiring. So we're going to, we're going to assume that there's some hunger in there. And in this arena though, that you're in, don't we often find ourselves trying to either increase our own hunger or increase the hunger of our team. So on one hand, we can define what hunger looks like, but if we're talking about how do I increase the hunger, give us some thoughts on that. Well, it's a, it's, it's a really good question because of the three things, humility, hunger, and smarts, which is more emotional intelligence, you know, common sense around people, hunger, if you had asked me before I wrote the book and before I got into this, I would have thought, yeah, that's one you can actually change in a person pretty well. It's actually the hardest okay. because I think it's something that gets instilled in, in us relatively young in life. And, and, and so here's how if – you, if, you, if you're working with somebody who lacks hunger, um, there's three ways to, to go about trying to help them become more hunger. One is to just kind of understand – you know, what, what their makeup is and, and, and their sense of responsibility and how they grew up. And did you have a hard, I, I like to ask people when I interviewed them, did you work hard in high school? Mm. I don't care what your grades were, but did you work hard and did you get involved in things and really put, apply yourself? If they're the kind of person that isn't naturally hungry, hungry, and there are certain personality types that are less than others, then what I would say is, what about the mission? What about the mission we have here in our, in, our, in our work? Think about how we're changing people's lives or serving people in some way, whether you're providing food in the drive-thru window or curing cancer or somewhere in between. Don't you think the mission's important and your customers? And if they don't have that, then I say, what about your teammates? How do you feel about the fact that you have a responsibility to them? And if, if none of those things is enough, then you got to come to the conclusion that this is just not for them. Okay. And that's a hard thing to do because I've worked with some really wonderful people who were passionate about their lives. They were passionate about their recreation, their family, their, a lot of things, but not about work. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't change that in them. Now, let me say this though, Kevin, I'm not talking about workaholism because I, I, I look at a lot of people in the Silicon Valley. I've seen a lot of this that are workaholics, but that's not hunger. That's, identifying themselves as their job. So it's a person who says, I will go above and beyond. I will do extra. I want to, I have a really high standard, 
but it doesn't define me. And this is not the only thing that I am. Mm. So again, it's that balance between don't be a workaholic, but do extra check in with other people on your team. Can you help them? Don't do what your boss says to go a little further than that. Don't just satisfy your customer, but kind of wow them. So this is the one where I appeal to the people that I work with. If I don't think they're hungry to either satisfy the mission, satisfy their colleagues. And if I can't get them to do that, then probably they need to go do something else where the mission matters more to them. Again, another long. No, it's, it's great. And it's interesting to hear you say that that's the hardest because again, you know, I, I live in this personal development development world. I mean, we do in, in the business podcasting arena and, and that's what Ziegler is about as well. And you know, again, and I'll speak to the audience, folks. I know there's people who are listening right now and you do, you know, uh, you do want more. You do think there's more out there that, that you want more from yourself. And yet you realize year in, year out, you've read more books, you've listened to more podcasts and frustrated. And again, I'll put myself in here sometimes frustrated at the progress that we have made. And I think that question comes up, how do I increase my hunger? Now, you just gave us some questions to ask really around, I guess, around motive is what you came yeah, to. Okay. Exactly. Okay. And, and Dave Ramsey's crew is great. The people that listen to Dave Ramsey, I speak at his conferences. They, he has the hungriest audience. They go, they're just like, and then there's other people that are financially struggling and they know that Dave Ramsey has a solution, but darn it, they're going to watch reruns of the office and not <laughs> listen to his podcast and act on that. And so you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. And and so there is something innate. And, you know, I, I do work with people in a food pantry once a week. I go and I just chat with them and, and do help them a little bit. And there are people there that are just, man, they've tried and bad things have happened and they just want to do better. And you're, they're looking for a job or something like that. And then there are plenty with emotional problems and drug problems. And then there's some people that are just satisfied. Mm-hmm. They're like, yeah, I, I don't. And, and it's kind of like you got to go, okay, until they find a motivation, investing in them giving them money, giving them opportunity when they're not really looking for that, give it to the people that are truly hungry mm-hmm. or truly in need. And, and that's a tough one to insight. It, 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 there needs to be some internal motivation. And as I've tried to, we've all tried in our lives to motivate a, a cousin, a brother, a sister, an employee, a friend. And if they don't have that desire, it's really tough to put it in them. Yes. It, it's interesting. My wife and I, my family are involved in a Native American uh, reservation, have been for many, many years, a real impoverished one, small one. And uh, it's been interesting to me as one of the more purpose-driven people, uh, as a highly purpose-driven person that I am, that they are the least. And I I have not found any secret as to how to motivate those who are not motivated at all. Uh, and I think part of it is... It's, it gets instilled when they're young. In other words, yeah. it, it, it's like, did they ever see anybody who applied themselves and, 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 and received the fruits from it and seen how mm. that made them a better person, gave them dignity? And, 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 so, and if they haven't, the real poverty that they experience is a poverty of examples and a oh, poverty wow. of, of, of having visualized what that looks like. And that's why poverty, we tend to look at poverty as just an economic thing, but poverty of hope, poverty of spirit are all actually much deeper. In- Guys, it's really interesting you point that out. In my, I don't do a whole lot of personal coaching consulting anymore, um, but used to. And I found that the people I had, the demographic that was the most difficult for me to get results with uh, were males who had grown up in homes where mom and or dad had a consistent job for 40 years at a factory or at a company, you know, where they put their time in, they put food on the table, but there was no connection to inspiration or to purpose. And these guys who, who felt like, you know, they got, they got, uh, they listened to some podcasts, they read a book and they got the idea that there should be something more. I had such a difficult time finding that core motivation that would actually make them go forward and do that. And when you talk about they had a poverty of examples, that rings true. That, yeah. that, that rings incredibly true. I didn't have that mentality then. I just, I just got more, uh, more specific in filtering who I worked with uh, that I thought I could get results with, and I, I didn't have great success there. You know, I, I was reading your bio and how you, you, you've been self-employed, and much of what you do is helping people to find freedom in their lives to – and. Um, and I realized my kids have grown up with me having my own company mm-hmm. and, 
and, and, and I work very hard, but I, I have a very flexible, you know, there's days I'm at home working and writing. And so there's days where I'm at a hotel writing and they come and swim with me. And, and I, and it's funny, it's like their paradigm of work is going to be very different than mine oh was. My, gosh, my dad yeah. worked for the same company for 40 years. And so every kid grows up with a paradigm mm-hmm. and our job is to help them understand that what they, what they experienced as a kid is not the only thing, but to help them realize they're going to need to find that on their own. Yeah. That's, that's very interesting. I've had, I grew up, uh, my dad never worked for anybody. I never knew anything different. And I've had, now I've got older kids now, college age kids. And, uh, I've had a couple of them go, daddy, I'm so sorry, but I, I really want to go to school. I'm not ready to do the entrepreneur thing yet. I'm going, it's okay. It's okay. But that's their, that's their example. And we've had to deal with that. My wife and I had as yeah. well, uh, really interesting. I love that line, poverty of examples and how convicting is uh, that to to us as parents. All right. Well, I want to hit the third one here. Smarts is what you label it in the book, but you just said a minute ago, emotional intelligence. And again, let me read a little section in the context of teamwork. Being smart is not about one's intellectual capacity. Instead, smart team players have good common sense about people. They tend to know what is happening in the group and how to deal effectively uh, with others. They ask good questions, listen to what others are, are saying and stay engaged in conversations. I mean, again, that brought me back to what we talked about with humility to a need for self-confidence and social awareness, which I would say, again, I'm going to ask the question, where do you see us just to get the cards on the table, where do you see us culturally in corporate America? One and two, we have so much talk, and I don't want to put a lot of emphasis on this, but on the, on the next generation, the millennials is getting so much uh, focus right now. Are we at a at a worse place right now culturally with this aspect of emotional intelligence uh, and social awareness? How are we doing? Well, I think there's things. In bo- moving in both directions. I mean, I think just that we talk about it more and there's books out there, you know, Travis Bradbury and Daniel Goldman and all these people doing things around emotional intelligence. And I think most of us know, you know, those kids that are brilliant, but can't look somebody in the eye and shake hands and talk to them. You know, we know that that's not a good recipe for success. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, we've, the other thing that's, so people are becoming more aware of this, but on the other hand, we've got a lot more isolation and technology and people who text one another. I think kids will 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 emerge from that you know i have 19 year old sons they're in college and they're coming to terms with that you know and and i remember my my son when he was 16 or 17 had a girlfriend and and he would text her all the time and i'd say you know why don't you call her and he just looked at me like i had a third eye and i said don't you want to don't you want to know what the tone of voice she has is and hear her voice and connect with her? And he said, well, dad, we have these emojis that do that. See, I put in a smiley face or a a heart or something like that. And I thought, Oh, these kids are lost, but now they're in college and now they're doing more things. And it seems as though they're, they're waking up to that. So I don't think it's going to be quite so bad. I think there are some people that are going to be locked in their, their own little virtual worlds and that's not good. Um, The question is how do we teach them? And I think the thing is what we're going to find more than ever, I actually believe that raw intelligence is going to become less and less important in the world Hmm. because, because technology is making information and access pretty, pretty easy for everyone. And, but the differentiator that will never be easier because of technology is who has the kind of personality that connect with people can build relationships. So I actually think that the, 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 the great differentiator between a, in a, one business to another and one person to another and one family to another is going to be their, their human dynamics. Mm-hmm. So I think it's moving in the right direction because it used to be that if you could calculate a number in your head, you were smart and you could get a job in a company and do that because they needed that. Now, I mean, my kids can do more with their computer in college than I could do in my first job. Mm-hmm. And I really believe people are going to start valuing even more the interpersonal stuff. Having said that, in a radically secularized world, if you don't include virtue in that, then then it gets a little bit twisted. So so I don't know how it's going to play out. All I know is that I think we need to teach our children and our families and one another and our employees the importance of humility and virtue and interpersonal dialogue. Um, 
So anyway, does well, that, I don't know if that answers. Yeah, yeah, question. absolutely. Well, uh, and I'm wondering again, coming back to my own role as a father, I'm highly aware that this emotional intelligence and understanding of human dynamics is up to myself and my wife and, and other people we, and resources we put into place. It's not going to come in uh, out of school or the culture in general, but when you're in these uh, brought into these corporate environments and these large teams, and you're talking about that, what are the resources that you give either to the group at large or to the leaders of that group to help people grow in this area of emotional intelligence, smarts? That's a great question. So there's two things. First of all, humility is most important because if you're smart, but you're not humble, then you're going to just manipulate people. So okay. we've got to start there. The second thing is we have to make the people around us our coaches. So let's just say, Kevin, we're talking and you say, you know, Pat, I've recognized that I'm humble and hungry, but I'm not smart. And by the way, we have a word for that. People that are humble and hungry, which are, the, are two really important, but not smart are what we call accidental messmakers. So they, they mean well, they do a great job, but they kind of frustrate people and step on people's toes and they have to apologize and clean up. You have to clean up after them. Right. What we say is admit to the people that you work with that you're like that hmm. and not only give them permission, but beg them to stop you and catch you and remind you every time you do that. And we do that here in our office. So if somebody is, is one of these people that struggles with that, every time they say something that's a little, that ruffles somebody's feathers and they don't even realize that we stop and go, Hey, Bill, you realized you, what you said could really piss her off. Right. And they're like, no, really? They're like, Oh yeah. Ask her, look at she's, and he's, Oh gosh, thanks for telling me. I didn't mean it. They will get wow. better. The problem is when we don't, when we see people do things and we don't coach them in the moment, yeah. they're never going to learn. And so what, what I say is, how do you help people with this or with any of these? Sit around the table with people, say humble, hungry, and smart, which is your third best? No matter how good you are at any of them, which is your number three? Admit to the team, yeah, sometimes I struggle with humility. Sometimes I struggle with this or that. And everybody become the coach of everyone around their third best virtue or their wow. least virtue. And over time, people will inevitably get better because if people will call them in real time on their issues, they're going to get better. Wow. But we deprive them of that by not speaking up. So if a person is bad at emotional intelligence, say, okay, we'll let you know when you do that. If a person is bad at hunger, every time they short arm something or don't do enough, We'll call it out. Mm -hmm. If a person is not humble and they talk about themselves all the time and they're always needy, we'll call you on that. That is the kindest, most loving thing you can do. You will become their best friend. You will pour into them. You will make their family life better, their work life better, and their whole life better. We as a society need to do that more. That's, yeah, that's, that's a big, again, I'm, I keep going back to my family. Of course, I've got the team here with business and stuff, but my family, what a great place for us to be, to get those out on the table to, well, and you're ultimately calling us, you're ultimately calling us in this to do this well, to take this message, which is in the book, the ideal team player, to take that and to embrace it, to engage with it and to progress with it. We've got to start off with a personal audit and awareness of ourselves. Yes. Yes, exactly. It starts with ourselves. So if you're the parent that wants to do this or the leader that wants to do this, go to them and say, hey, here's these three things. I'm not very good. At, the, the one I struggle with the most is this one. I'd like you guys to help me. So when you see me do this, I'm asking you to do that because I want to get better. Now, what, are, what, do you, what do you think yours are? If you go to them and say, I've gone through this and I've analyzed each of you and here's the ones I think you need to improve on. They're not going to be open to that. Be humble first to say, I'm going to let you pour into me and I'm going to be vulnerable about my area for improvement. And that will open up them to do it for themselves. Well, you, this is going to go into my business, into my work, into my company, into my team. I'll tell you, I got, I'm, I'm a little more excited uh, to take it to my family. Uh, it's really yeah. strong stuff, Patrick. I just, I'm grateful for your for putting this message out. I know you've got you know a lot of books, a lot of messages. I really like this one because the ideal team player, I mean, that is, it's so relational. Uh, I feel like I, 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 I try not to say this with everything that it's for everybody. It's really for everybody who does not need to read this book. I don't know. Every one of my kids needs to read this book uh, as they're going out, my teammates. And again, this is, a, it's not a shameless 
Well, it is shameless promotion here, but it's, it's just <laughs> profound. I mean, who is not going to benefit by embracing these three areas? And I do see it as the place where we are probably faltering most in corporate America, in families, in churches, as you said. Uh, thank you. Thank you for, for just being an open book with this and um, doing what hey, you, you know, do. You know, I should pretty, say one last yeah. thing is – this is by far the simplest book I've ever written, and I almost didn't write it because oh. I thought, well, this is too simple. It's not going to be insightful. And other people said, you need to write this. And so it's one of those things that sometimes we think that the only way to add value is to be very sophisticated. Hmm. And, and this is a very simple principle, and I th- we think it has the most universal appeal. So I'm just kind of commenting on what you said. To those of you that are thinking, it, it's, it's, it's a short book. It doesn't require somebody to be super sophisticated because the most important things in life aren't. And so I would just encourage other people to find a way to apply it in their lives as well. And well I appreciate you hearing that. Absolutely. I mean, I, the, the top, the top uh, testimony I, I see on the book is no business author alive today packs more wisdom per page than Patrick Lencioni. This book is elegant in its simplicity and will radically alter what it means to be a true team player. Well said by that guy. Uh, again, uh, Patrick, thank you. Thank you for uh, giving us this message and taking time to share it with the Ziegler audience today. Hey, God bless you, and thanks for having me on their own little virtual worlds, and that's not good. Yeah. Um, the question is, how do we teach them? And I think the thing is what we're going to find more than ever. I actually believe that raw intelligence is going to become less and less important in the world hmm. because, because technology is making – information and access pretty pretty easy for everyone and but the differentiator that will never be easier because of technology is who has the kind of personality that connect with people can build relationships so i actually think that the the the, the great differentiator between a, in, a, in one business to another and one person to another and one family to another is going to be their their human dynamics mm-hmm. So I think it's moving in the right direction because it used to be that if you could calculate a number in your head, you were smart and you could get a job in a company and do that because they needed that. Now, I mean, my kids can do more with their computer in college than I could do in my first job. Mm-hmm. And I really believe people are going to start valuing even more the interpersonal stuff. Having said that, in a radically secularized world, if you don't include virtue in that, then then it gets a little bit twisted. So – so I don't know how it's going to play out. All I know is that I think we need to teach our children and our families and one another and our employees the importance of humility and virtue and interpersonal dialogue. Um, so anyway, does well, that, I don't know if that answers Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, and I'm wondering, again, coming back to my own role as a father, I'm highly aware that this emotional intelligence and understanding of human dynamics is up to myself and my wife and, and other people we, and resources we put into place. It's not going to come in uh, out of school or the culture in general, but when you're in these uh, brought into these corporate environments and these large teams, and you're talking about that, what are the resources that you give either to the group at large or to the leaders of that group to help people grow in this area of Emotional intelligence, smarts. That's a great question. So there's two things. First of all, humility is most important because if you're smart but you're not humble, then you're going to just manipulate people. So we've got to start there. The second thing is we have to make the people around us our coaches. So let's just say, Kevin, we're talking and you say, you know, Pat, I've recognized that I'm humble and hungry, but I'm not smart. And by the way, we have a word for that. People that are humble and hungry, which are, the, are two really important, but not smart, are what we call accidental messmakers. So they, they mean well, they do a great job, but they kind of frustrate people and step on people's toes and have to apologize and clean up. You have to clean up after them. Mm-hmm. What we say is admit to the people that you work with that you're like that. Mm-hmm. And not only give them permission, but beg them to stop you and catch you and remind you every time you do that. And we do that here in our office. So if somebody is, is one of these people that struggles with that, every time they say something that's a little, that ruffles somebody's feathers and they don't even realize it, we stop and go, hey, Bill, you realize you, what you said could really piss her off, right? And they're like, no, really? They're like, oh, yeah, ask her. Look, it. She's, and he's, oh, gosh, thanks for telling me. I didn't mean it. They will get wow. better. The problem is when we, don't, when we see people do things and we don't coach them in the moment, yeah. they're never going to learn. And so what, what I say is, how do you help people with this or with any of these? Sit around the table 
with people, say humble, hungry, and smart, which is your third best, no matter how good you are at any of them, which is your number three? Admit to the team, yeah, sometimes I struggle with humility. Sometimes I struggle with this or that. And everybody become the coach of everyone around their third best virtue or their least virtue. And over time, people will inevitably get better because if people will call them in real time on their issues, they're going to get better. But we deprive them of that by not speaking up. So if a person is bad at emotional intelligence, say, okay, we'll let you know when you do that. If a person is bad at hunger, every time they short arm something or don't do enough, we'll call it out. Mm -hmm. If a person is not humble and they talk about themselves all the time and they're always needy, we'll call you on that. That is the kindest, most loving thing you can do. You will become their best friend. You will pour into them. You will make their family life better, their work life better, and their whole life better. We as a society need to do that more. That's, yeah, that's, that's a big, again, I'm, I keep going back to my family. Of course, I've got the team here with business and stuff, but my family, what a great place for us to be, to get those out on the table to, well, and you're ultimately calling us, you're ultimately calling us in this to do this well, to take this message, which is in the book, the ideal team player, to take that and to embrace it, to engage with it and to progress with it. We've got to start off with a personal audit and awareness of ourselves. Yes. Yes, exactly. It starts with ourselves. So if you're the parent that wants to do this or the leader that wants to do this, go to them and say, hey, here's these three things. I'm not very good. The the one I struggle with the most is this one. I'd like you guys to help me. So when you see me do this, I'm asking you to do that because I want to get better. Now, what 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 do you think yours are? If you go to them and say, I've gone through this and I've analyzed each of you and here's the ones I think you need to improve on. They're not going to be open to that. Be humble first to say, I'm going to let you pour into me and I'm going to be vulnerable about my area for improvement. And that will open up them to do it for themselves. Well, you, this is going to go into my business, into my work, into my company, into my team. I'll tell you, I got, I'm I'm a little more excited uh, to take it to my family. Uh, It's really strong stuff, Patrick. I just, I'm grateful for your, for putting this message out. I know you've got, uh, you know, a lot of books, a lot of messages. I really like this one because the ideal team player, I mean, that is, it's so relational. Uh, I feel like I, 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 I I try not to say this with everything that uh, it's for everybody. It's really for everybody who does not need to read this book. I don't know. Every one of my kids needs to read this book uh, as they're going out, my teammates. And again, this is, it's not a shameless, well, it is shameless promotion here, but it's, it's just (laughs) profound. I mean, who is not going to benefit by embracing these three areas? And I do see it as the place where we are probably faltering most in corporate America, in families, in churches, as you said, Uh, thank you. Thank you for, for just being an open book with this and um, doing what hey, you, you know, do. You know, I should bring... say one last yeah. thing is this is by far the simplest book I've ever written. And I almost didn't write it because oh. I thought, well, this is too simple. It's not going to be insightful. And other people said, you need to write this. And so it's one of those things that sometimes we think that the only way to add value is to be very sophisticated. Hmm. And, and this is a very simple principle and I th- we think it has the most universal appeal. So I'm just kind of commenting on what you said. To those of you that are thinking, it, it's, it's, it's a short book. It doesn't require somebody to be super sophisticated because the most important things in life aren't. And so I would just encourage other people to find a way to apply it in their lives as well. And well I appreciate you. Absolutely. I mean, I, the, the top, the top, uh, testimony I, I see on the book is no business author alive today packs more wisdom per page than Patrick Lencioni. This book is elegant in its simplicity and will radically alter what it means to be a true team player. Well said by that guy. Uh, again, uh, Patrick, thank you. Thank you for, uh, giving us this message and taking time to share it with the Ziegler audience today. Hey, God bless you. And thanks for having me on. Folks, what a rich conversation with Patrick Lencioni. Again, connect with him at tablegroup.com slash hub and find his new book, The Ideal Team Player, wherever you buy your books. Well, coming up next in show 550, we go behind the scenes with Patrick and follow the seven spokes in the Ziggler Wheel of Life, find his challenges and health habits in each spoke. Some of the highlights, he's a lifetime athlete but struggles with some hip and knee issues. He's cut way back on sugar, eating and drinking it. Uh, and especially habits like downing a whole bag of red vines. His biggest family challenge is just too many activities. His mental regimen has three components that he talks about, exercise, sleep, and silence. 
He attends mass every day for half an hour and feels it's the best thing he does all day. In his career, he always wants to be taking some risk and not to be found overprotecting the last best thing. On the personal front, he's terrible at taking time to do things he just enjoys and doesn't take enough time to nurture friendships enough. He loves going to the movies. Well, folks, it was a great conversation. You'll want to hear it. Till then, thank you for letting me walk with you as we inspire our true performance together. <laughs>